This is the No Dogma Podcast. I'm Brian Hogan. This interview was recorded on March 18th and it was published on April 20th, 2015. It's part of a longer interview which can be downloaded from the website nodogmapodcast.brianhogan.net. I'm joined today by Peter Welsh, a self-described code monkey. Thanks for joining me, Peter. Uh, thank you. Can you tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, I am a predominantly front-end software engineer. Uh, I've been coding for about 10 years, um, the first five of which went fairly poorly. Uh, I was actually trained as a filmmaker. Uh, I went to school for film for film theory, actually, the most useless of all degrees, for about uh, seven years, um, and then found myself unemployed and picked up coding as a hobby. Uh, eventually started teaching it very badly in a post-secondary ed school. Uh, and eventually when the taxes came for that job, I had to go get real engineering jobs. Um, and 10, 11 years later, I'm almost competent. Nice. So I came across your work as a, a blogger on a particular article called Programming Sucks. But, but first of all, can you tell me a little bit about your writing and why you write? Well, writing is actually what I want to do. Uh, I've wanted to be a writer since, uh, probably since I read my first Dave Barry column, uh, which would have been late 90s. Um, and I've been trying to go around it, create a career somehow in writing, um, fairly unsuccessfully. Um, and my other work pays the bills until uh, maybe I can become an author. Would you have a, a book published, or is it one or two books? Uh, two books. Yeah. And they're available from your website, which I'll have a link to. Uh, do you yeah. want to mention them briefly? Uh, sure. Uh, the first one is just a uh, documented account of a psychotic episode I had when I was 20. Um, when I was doing way, way too many drugs, uh, and one pushed me completely over the edge. Uh, spent some time in a mental institution, um, thought I was Jesus. Um, completely, complete psychotic meltdown. Uh, so recovered from that, uh, thankfully. Um, and got tired of telling that story to everybody I met. So I decided to just put it together once and for all. Um, and the other one is more like a collection of essays from the blog. Uh, a few, there's about 50% new material in there. Uh, but it's mostly just short essays on relationships and, uh, you know, growing up in the modern technological age. So let's turn to your article, the Programming Sucks article that you wrote. It describes a world of dysfunctional programmers, companies, and everything going on. Can you talk about that article, please? Yeah, so that article actually came after I had read a bunch of James Micken's articles. Um, who was a hilarious writer. Uh, I think he wrote for a, a Microsoft research, or he was a Microsoft researcher, and published a lot of excellent, hilarious articles. Um, and I just shamelessly copped his style. <laughs> and that turned out to be uh, very popular. And it was... I was attempting to write a rant about what I'd been going through. Uh, it was another crunch time at my job at the time. And actually, there's a description in there of uh, one of the problems in JavaScript uh, where 1 divided by 0 equals infinity, uh, which is a terrible thing to do because if that's true, the numbers stop working. Um, but that turned out to be a compiling error in that. And that was... I essentially wrote programming sucks at the end of the eight hours it took me to hunt down that bug. Um, so the example illustrated in that article is exactly what I was going through at the time. 
You've also go through uh, the idea of uh, a company building a bridge, but no one actually knows how to build a bridge, has never done it, and all sorts of egos and crazy people come together to not build it properly. Yeah, there's a part of that is my frustration with the interview process. I've been to a lot of interviews, and it always seems to be they are looking for people who know the things they know. Uh, something, you know, my mom, when she was on a bunch of school boards, she said one of the problems with school boards is every time um, they try to come up with a list of books everybody should read, uh, it's always a list of books that the people on the board have read. Um, and I see like the talent for programming is a set of skills that are very difficult to determine if somebody has um, by talking to them for a few hours. I mean, I would say the most valuable things in programming are um, discipline, uh, not doing the shotgun solution right away, uh, taking the time to do things uh, properly. Uh, even if it's tedious, even if it feels terrible, it always saves you time in the future. And you're not going to be able to find someone who has that skill or, you know, the other skills that are important in programming, um, you know, from talking to them for six hours. You have to see them work. You have to see their process. You have to work with them. Um, so what we're left with is people sort of liking people because they like the same things, people being personable, uh, people having a great CV, um, previous employers willing to lie for them. And you don't end up with, there's no, there's no way to tell what people are going to be able to do uh, when you get there. So you end up with sort of just a random grab bag of teams. And like I see uh, the, um, the, the programming teams I've worked on that really worked, I thought of as luck. Uh, I've seen eight-hour interview processes, like four-day interview processes, uh, that finally decided, you know, this is the guy out of 100 candidates that will do it. And they come in, um, and they do an absolutely crap job. Um, they, they can't last. And meanwhile, the people who hire them sort of want to believe that they weren't, they, they, they don't want to believe that they could be so wrong about somebody. Uh, so those people will stay in the company for years. <laughs> um, and you end up, nice. yeah. And it's a very, because the pace of programming is so, um, it's so breakneck these days. Like, it used to be very few people, uh, you know, a small number of extremely smart people trying to solve problems the right way. And now it's trying to get another product out the door so a customer will be slightly happier <clears throat> or the company will make slightly more money. No, uh, so you get this... Yeah, I, I think ahead. you're absolutely right. The whole interview process has gone crazy in software. There, I, I've said this in another um, podcast. There's a company in Boston that used to have four and a half days of interviews, so four eight-hour days and one four-hour day. Yeah. And then the people who are there, they stay there for years. So you get this awful stagnation. You don't get any new people in. And to your point, the people who've hired them, they've signed off on it. They've said, you know, on my reputation, this guy is good. Of course they're not going to start mm -hmm. firing them. And yeah. then on the know what you know, I've actually met a bunch of people who've in interviews when I've been in, it's all about, oh, do you know this really obscure thing? Oh, if you don't, you're shit. Yeah. Um, I, I went in to interview for someone, and um, 
I was doing fine in all the interviews. I was interviewing for a front end position, like, uh, JavaScript, know your jQuery, get your CSS, know how to build, you know, decent DOM. Like that was my specialty. <clears throat> and the guy, uh, the last person who interviewed me, the CEO, like asked me in and asked me to implement a hash table. Oh yes. You absolutely so this was, have to do one of those. Yeah. I was, this was several years ago and I didn't even know what a hash table was. <laughs> this is sort of, you know, had I, had I been trained as a computer in computer science in college and done all these homework assignments and so on, it would have been wrote. But I told him straight off the bat, like I'm a self-taught programmer who specializes in sort of high level scripting languages. So to expect me to know that and have whether or not I knew that be indicative of my ability to do the job I wanted uh, seemed pretty absurd to me. And what was even more offensive is that I figured it out in about 15 or 20 minutes, but apparently it took too many hints from him to do that properly. Right. It, it's unbelievable. I was actually once at an interview where it was a C-sharp job, but a piece of code was presented to me in C++. And I was told the code may or may not do what it's meant to do. And the title of the method was just method A. So yeah. I had no indication of what it was supposed to do. And then I was told it might not do what it's meant to do. And I was kind of going, well, what the hell do you want? And as I made my way through it, you know, there were deliberate typos, like a single equal sign instead of a doubles for a comparison. But then we mm. got to a point where there was, I can't remember, was it the star or the ampersand? And one of them means the address in memory that you're looking at and the other means mm -hmm. the value in that address. And I said to the interviewer, I can't remember which is which. And they said to me, guess. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why would I guess? Yeah. I've admitted that I don't crazy. know something. Can we move on? And it just went downhill from there. But yeah. it's such a common thing. A, a buddy of mine actually has also interviewed recently and they asked him to write his own thread pool. And again, it was sort of, why? I, I, it, <laughs> It seems then that if you, you, if you discourage good people from hiring companies, you end up with more crazy people. Yeah. You do discourage good people. And it's, it's, I have a slightly different, I have a mentality that it's almost seems alien to, well, not, not everybody, but I'm, I'm a particular type of programmer, which is like, let's just do this. Let's not have an argument. Like I have no, you know, I use Vim because I'm used to Vim. If I was at a company I was required to use Emacs, I would be annoyed, but I would use Emacs. Like it's, I don't, it, you want to use two spaces? Fine. You want to use four spaces? Fine. You want to use tabs? Dear God, no, but fine. Like you do it, you adapt, uh, you get in there and you get it done. And I think being Part of that is being self-taught. I have no attachment. I did not learn these things when I was like a hormonal teenager. Like the music I heard between 17 and 25 is the best music that was ever written and everything else is terrible and I don't know what these kids are listening to anymore. Um, and that's, that's because everything you encounter when, you know, between in your college years, like those are the defined, that's what you're passionate about because that's the last time you were really passionate about anything. Um, so it's odd to, you know, when I come into programming, which uh, I like it now, I like certain parts of programming, but it has always been 100% utilitarian to me, um, which I feel is a good way to come into programming. Um, like, it, for me, 
Like somebody told me, you really need to understand how ad networks work if you're going to be a programmer for an ad network. And I was like, no, I don't. I need to know how to make an Ajax callback. <laughs> it doesn't matter who I'm working for or where I'm working for what the industry is or anything. It's all just numbers going in and numbers coming out. Uh, but people tend to get very passionate about, you know, numbers going in in a particular way, you know, things being named a particular way. Uh, camel case is, for some reason, infinitely better than uh, snake case. It's And these things really interfere in something that is a extremely technical profession. Like, Architects don't get to choose uh, necessarily. Like they, they don't get to choose their standards. They don't get to say like, "Well, I like the metric system, but you know, this guy over here, he's come up with a new measurement system, and I think we might want to work. We might want to go with that. You know, let's just try that out. See if the building stands up." Um, and it's true that programming should not be held to the level of an engineer. Like if a website goes down, it's very different from a bridge falling down. But isn't that the issue, though? We call it engineering. And I've often thought it isn't really, because if you had to reboot your car or your toaster or anything else, you'd be laughing at us. And in your article, you talk about no one has a damn clue how it really works. Just turn it off and turn it on and maybe it'll be better. Well, part of the problem with that is how complex programming is. Um, we have like this computer, uh, the computer I'm looking at right now is billions of times more complex than a bridge. A bridge is a bigger thing, more difficult to construct and has to, you know, follow you know, strict standards. Uh, but there's just too much there. You can't have a single person. There can't be one architect who will build a computer from scratch. Like, Not deep in our hearts, Not we all want to believe, yeah, we want to believe Nikola Tesla could do it. But I think even he would look at this and say, like, no, too many parts, they're all too tiny. Um, I cannot build a graphics GPU from scratch and still get this thing out the door on time. Um, so, and the internet makes that we are all wired together now. Like it's the future is here. <laughs> like we all have immensely powerful computers all over the place. They're all interconnected. Like unimaginable amounts of data are flying around everywhere all the time. Things are going to break down and nobody's going to be able to know why all the time. But then how do companies attract people, let's say, avoid, given that there were so many problems in the interview process, how do companies attract good people and then retain them to ensure that there are less of these problems? How do companies attract good people? I will say I don't look at, I don't get invited to interviews anymore. I don't interview people. Like every company, like, asked me to do it, and if I can't get out of it, I go in for a couple of interviews, and eventually they stop asking me to help interview, because I don't ask any of these questions. I basically want to talk to somebody for 10 minutes and then see their code. I want to see the project they're proudest of, that they wrote from scratch, they didn't copy and paste. And I feel, if I look at that code, and it looks solid, and it takes care of things, and things are clearly labeled, um, if, you know, it doesn't have to be a work of art, um, but it has to function, be understandable. If I can look at their code, even in another language, and understand it and see that it does what it's supposed to do and it does it cleanly uh, without common mistakes, I feel like that's as much as I can know about the person. And the conversation I have with them is not a technical. I never ask any technical questions um, because people underestimate 
the number of possible technical questions that are out there. Like there are hundreds of programming languages and hundreds of obscure gotchas in every single one of those languages. So, you know, maybe like, yes, they should be able to do fizzbuzz, but if they can't do fizzbuzz, you'll figure that out pretty quickly. I prefer to just talk to somebody and it's like, does this person seem relaxed? Does this person seem comfortable uh, in a situation? Are they comfortable being interviewed? If they seem relaxed being interviewed, they probably know what they're doing. Oh, and it's, uh, and I just feel 15 minutes of their time and send me some code. And I, don't, I have no problem with the coding test thing. Coding tests are very popular these days. And that seems sensible. It's I'm like, not a big fan of them in the sense I, no? uh, I don't mind whiteboarding. And I know some friends of mine who absolutely hate whiteboarding and they much prefer a test. Excellent engineers. Uh, mm. For me, a test, it just feels too much like someone standing over my shoulder looking at me as I try to type and I'm typing in typos and then I just get a little bit flustered. For me, I don't like that um, because it could also very easily happen that you've gotten wind of what the test is or you happen to have done something just like that recently. Oh, it's, I didn't mean the test that you have to do in the office, okay. like not writing code there. Like that's absurd. Okay, uh, sorry. Particularly someone without a training, like I could not, if Google, if Google shuts down, like I'm just going home for the day. Like I can't do my job without Google. <laughs> I can't even, I can't even remember the CSS things that I've typed in, you know, thousands of times. Like I have to look stuff up. Um, I mean, take home coding tests where they just say like, you have a day or two, uh, here's what we want. Go nuts. But in even those, though, it can become a significant uh, draw on time. There was a company in Boston, and I remember I got the um, the test sheet from them. And realistically, you were talking 15 to 20 hours of programming. And even then, it was sort of, well, this isn't really my area, so I'm not going to get it all that well. Whereas in that 15 or 20 hours, I could probably do 10 to 20 phone screens who with companies that are not going to give me a stupid test, <laughs> but no, that's, that's fair. Uh, it's, I, it is a difficult problem. Do you really think the software industry is as dysfunctional as you've described here in this and in your article? Uh, it, I'm going to double answer your question. Cause in sure. one, in one sense, absolutely. Um, it is, it is the code I've seen running, half billion dollar companies is a travesty. Like I, I've, I've started jobs and opened a file and just laughed out loud at it. It's like, who would do this? I've seen a guy who I replaced and I, I was trying to figure out what was wrong with his, his, his front end code. And he was using, he was asynchronously calling iframes, which would then asynchronously, asynchronously call other JavaScript in which would write code with it. Um, it I'm was confused. like, <laughs> yeah, it was like Ajax from 1990. Um, it's like for anybody who doesn't understand that, it would be like if you wanted to take a picture of something. Um, so you decided to have somebody point their phone at it. Uh, you took a video camera of that screen, of the screen of that phone, showing what they were pointing the phone at. Uh, and then ran a cable from that video camera into a TV and then took a 35 millimeter camera and snapped a picture of that TV screen. Sounds fine to me. I don't know what you're <laughs> complaining about. 
it, it was it was absurd, uh, particularly for 2013, which was when I was looking at this. Or no, 2012. Um, it was something that n- somebody should have stopped them. Somebody should have seen what they were doing and said, "No, like you can't do this." And like this this company, that company had so much um, technical debt, and uh, I'm sure you know, but technical debt is the mistakes you let slide uh, just in order to get it done. Like you write little notes to yourself saying, "Like I promise, I'll fix this someday when the pressure lets up." Yeah, we need like security saying, at some point. Yeah, yeah. it's like saying, "Like I mean, I'm a smoker, and I say, like I'll quit as soon as the pressure lets up." The pressure never lets up, <laughs> and you know, given this, given that so few the people making the money decisions are never the people who understand, almost never the people who understand the technology. Um. There was actually a lot of a lot. There was a lot of good code behind OKCupid, um, which, uh, well, I don't want to say too much about that. Um, but they they had the people running the company um, for all their foibles uh, did actually understand what good code was. They didn't always make the right decision, but they did keep some control over their code base, um, which was amazing. That's why OKCupid is still a, a beautifully running site. Um, but most of the time that's not the case. Uh, the people are going to say like, can you do this in, um, the constant scenario I come up with is like, uh, can you change the font on all of these, uh, across our entire website? And I'm like, yeah, sure. It's done before they finish asking the question. And they're like, oh, great. Can you throw up a credit card form now? And I was like, that's going to take a month and a team of five people. Uh, they don't understand how complex it is to do certain things. They don't know the difference between these things. So they don't, when the money comes in and there's an enormous amount of money, they don't know how to apply the pressure. Um, they don't know where to apply the pressure. Everything seems the same for them. It's just, you know, make this work. They see the front of the website. They see what, uh, you know, users who know nothing about technology are going to see. And that means they they pressure people to like do things this way or do things that way or add this feature, uh, you know, with absurd time limits. Uh, and to them, it all seems the same. They don't see the difference between you know changing the font everywhere and accepting credit cards. Um, and it's very hard to communicate that back up. So you have all this pressure and all this money going in random ways, and the code base starts to reflect that. Like the actual engineering starts to reflect it. Uh, people say like, well, I can get a big win if I just do this right here. Everybody's going to love me. It's incredibly simple. It's five minutes. This one, uh, maybe going to farm that out to somebody else or get some help or just get to it when I can or just cheat and copy this over here because it's the same amount of pressure, but there's no win on it. But it becomes very strange in the sense you have people in roles like head of engineering who are supposed to ensure that good quality work is being done and that it's, you know, not just good, but that it's correct, functionally clean, maybe meets the deadline. And if they're not doing it, the CTO should be enforcing that it's done. But quite often the CTO isn't really all that technical. But what I've actually seen happens is it's the CEO wants something. He tells the CTO, the CTO tells the head of engineering, just get it done. Mm -hmm. And then the head of engineering says, well, cut any corners you need to and we'll program it. So there isn't really anyone ensuring that the process or a good process is being followed, and everyone's afraid of losing their jobs. 
in particularly yeah. in public companies, CEO could potentially be chairman of the board. Um, CTO will be on the board getting huge bonuses. He's not going to argue with the CEO because he wants his huge bonus. Yeah. And the head of engineering is not going to argue with the CTO because he's probably getting a huge bonus too. And it all flows like that. So I'm trying to remember in the in restaurant days, because uh, I, I waited tables for probably 10 years um, before I finally decided to finish up college. Um, and one of the worst restaurants I ever worked at was the one where the waiters suddenly had control. Um, and I was, I was a waiter, I've been a dishwasher, I've been a cook. Um, and waiting, waiting tables is horrible. You are everybody's bitch. You are the, the single go-to fail point for everything. Anybody who fucks up, it's your fault. It's a terrible position. Um, but you have to take it and you can't be in control. Kit, restaurants only work if the cooks are in control. So if you think of managers as waiters, like, or it, not managers, I would say um, the people between uh, the engineers and the sales team and the CEO and the bottom line, they have to be the waiters. <laughs> they have to, um, might be forcing this metaphor a little bit, um, they have to take shit from everybody. Um, and they need to, uh, when they get to the kitchen, the engineers, like the engineers have to be able to communicate clearly, like, this is what's up. Like, this is how long it will take. This is how hard it is. This is what we do. And they're going to get, you know, pressure from the engineers and pressure from, um, uh, you know, upper management. And they just have to take that role and be everybody's bitch. And I've seen this arrangement work really well. And it's it may seem like, and I'm not saying that the engineers always know best, uh, but once the engineers lose the feeling, you know, when they have to take these absurd requests, like, can you get this done by Monday? It's like, no, it's five o'clock on Friday. Uh, I want to go home and see my children. <laughs> I don't want to, I cannot get this to you by Monday. It is not an easy thing. Like this is a week long project. That has to be communicated back up effectively. Once the engineers feel like they lose control, that's when the whole situation gets even more dysfunctional um, and goes worse. And it's because of this it misapplied pressure and not enough, I guess, valves between uh, the people. Pres- um, this is all getting away from me, but I think I've communicated what I'm trying sure, to but say. I've seen something. I've seen when that's gone wrong. Uh, I worked in a company where the engineers had too much say. And they were over-engineering everything and ignoring deadlines and ignoring requests and turning relatively simple things into these ridiculously complicated scenarios. And I also have a friend uh, who works in a large uh, printing and publishing company in the Massachusetts area where they don't view themselves as a printing and publishing company. They view themselves as a software company that happens to do printing and publishing. And then they only hire the top 1% of engineers. And in reality, they don't need that, but they've grown snobby about it. And that's led to other problems. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. Getting the engineers to understand context is very, is also part of that deal. Um, and I have seen, I don't want to name names, no, but uh, <laughs> uh, a few companies where perhaps we're, excessively engineering centric 
and it would take us months to do things that at any other company would literally take days uh, because we had to write it from scratch. Um, it, it was a, it was years and years of reinventing wheels, reinventing wheels for wagons. When we already have cars with wheels, you can just buy. <laughs> um, and that, that ultimately paid out for them. Um, and multiple companies. Um, I don't know how, but, and yes, expectations that there'd be, it was because we treat the engineer, we still treat the engineer like a genius. I actually think um, sort of the widespread uh, code, um, uh, widespread coding education uh, in, the, in, you know, in public education, they're starting to do this in Europe. Like coding is just part of the curriculum um, for grade school, uh, the way math is. Um, and I think that will help a lot. Because we treat our engineers, people who don't program computers, uh, think engineers just do magic and, you know, make everything work. They have no concept of, it's really just a job, uh, uh, you do like any other job. But I've seen something exactly differently. Sorry, I've seen hmm. where companies treat engineers like interchangeable units. Mm -hmm. Engineer A equals B, you know what? We'll get rid of those two and we'll hire two more. You're just, you're not, your skills are irrelevant. I can pay someone else the same amount and they'll do the same. And that's nonsense. I don't, I don't think that's specific to, you know, the programming world in general. I mean, some people will treat their employees like replaceable cogs and others will, you know, try to maintain a team and ensure that people are happy. Um, best manager I ever had uh, was at lot 18 because he filled this role perfectly. Like he said, like, look, this is my team. They're going to come in around 10. They're going to leave around six. They're going to enjoy their jobs. They're going to get, you know, 10% time. And he did such a good job of fighting back, you know, against the people who said, like, who asked for unrealistic expectations. And the result was, like, all of our code was reviewed uh, by our peers. Like, the system was stable. It was tight. Everybody was happy. Uh, and it came down. It might be, you know, were that to be specific to an engineering, an engineering position, it might be the same sort of feeling, like, Everybody who has, who knows this, you know, magical knowledge, they just know this magic. Uh, I don't, people who are not programmers and programming companies tend to look at us and they can't really distinguish between us. They don't know the difference between my job and the sysadmin's job. Um, they, they just see, it's like, there are these people, um, who know how the magic computers work, um, just let them do their thing. And if you go, you know, we lose this magician, we'll get another one. Um, and that degree of respect or it's not, it's not respect, but that awe has to go away. Like they have to understand, like, you know, if we could have a better communication channel and it's like people are, it's, it's still, it's sunk in a nerd channel when the nerds like finally had something going for them instead of just like looking forward to, you know, lives as lonely accountants, you know, now, you know, they, they want that awe. I mean, I love that awe. Like I love going to somebody's computer and just like punching a few keys and fixing their problem. You know, it takes me seconds. It's fun. Um, but it would be better if people understood it like a job and, you know, treated it with the same respect like that anybody does any job well.
like, frankly, you know, my dad's a lawyer. Um, and he said like, yeah, people, you know, demonize us or hate us or don't understand it or don't understand the law. But he just explained it to me. And I discovered like, you know, being a lawyer is like, it's a job like any other job. Like you work with it. And they just happen to be on the opposite end of the respect syndrome. But I think programmers are often their own worst enemy because there are many, and I'm sure you've come across them too, who, who think that what they do is by far the most important thing. And that if the code isn't perfect uh, and perfect, obviously is very subjective or beautiful, well, then it's not good enough. And you know, that hack over there, he just throws things together. Whereas I, I know the truth of how to do it. And that's a massive problem within engineering. Uh, it is. And I, I think it, I mean, it stems from, it stems from being able to do a very powerful thing in a world where everybody relies on, you know, the thing that you're good at manipulating. Um, so there's, you know, an obvious cultural, um, you know, culture is on our side as programmers. And it's easy for people to start believing that. Um, and, you know, complex comes from, uh, but even simpler, like uh, apart from programming, like never trust anybody who claims that they have the truth. No, no, no. But do you think that programming in some way attracts those kind of personalities or it's just that they're more obvious in a role like programming where there's sometimes more respect given to someone who knows more, but often that person then becomes arrogant and pushes what they know. Like they say, you know what? Subversion is rubbish. We need Git because, you know, and subversion is not rubbish. It's just subversion. You know, all we need is some damn source control. Who cares what it is to a large degree? And yet mm. they'll argue and argue and argue about something that's almost irrelevant. Like I, one time I had a code review done and uh, I, I, I left in two consecutive white space lines and it was bloody mm. rejected. So I had to get latest again, edit that, run my tests, re-attempt to submit it, get latest, uh, merge it, give it back to the guy for review. It was probably an hour and a half for the sake of two white space lines. Yeah, it's it's hard for me to... I see this investment in it and... Sorry, because I don't want to. I don't want to generalize among, you know, a particular kind of personality or a particular type of person. Because I don't, I don't really buy that. I don't buy that. Like it's like, oh well, you know, nerd subtype X is just that's just the way they are. That's how they do it. They raise it, and in, I would be, um, I would be arrogant to claim I can, you know, cite all the you know, social. Uh, you know, factors that go into this. Um, the, I think it's the one, the one thing I w would not feel like I was out on a limb saying is that to be a programmer, to get into programming, and this is certainly not unique to the programming for profession. Um, I would say, uh, doctor is actually a pretty good, uh, uh, I'm not sure what the word is here. Your analogous profession is it's very isolating. Um, and if you are isolated, uh, you will, 
you have no reason to challenge your own beliefs. You will compound certain like t- totally insignificant things. Um, and you know, meanwhile, the internet provides um, you know thousands of strangers who will agree with whatever you want uh, them to agree with. So it's easy for people to get. Um, you know, when you're isolated, you get more uh, emotionally invested in sort of like you know what's left of your life. You know, we, no matter how trivial it seems to everybody else, like you'll have an experience and you'll have an experience over and over again. Uh, you will suddenly switch your text editor and suddenly like, you know, the gates of heaven open. You don't have the same problem anymore. And you tell, you know, try to tell the people around you, but they don't care because they're all like poets or arts majors or musicians. And you're the weird kid who sits at his computer and fixes all the recording equipment. Uh, so you are just, you get used to being an absolute expert um, and you get used to your opinion being absolute God and, it, you know, it being the only thing that, that makes you special that sets you apart that makes you needed. Um, you know, I'm painting a slightly more specific story here. Um, and I think that will go away as, as technology. Um, a lot of like just owning a computer um, was a nerdy thing to do when I was a kid. Like you, it was first of all a rich person thing, um, and to be able to use a computer made you a nerd. Um, is you know easily into high school, um, and now it's just absurd uh, for anybody in the first world to not have a computer. You're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, or like, are you a hippie? It's a, and I think. That's one of the reasons I like coding, getting you know into the default curriculum. Um, it will, you know, that's something that will, will make it more. Uh, I don't know what the word is. It won't be isolating to know how to do it. It won't be isolating, so it'll be easier to communicate uh, when you're doing it, and you know, more people know it, so it won't have this sort of um, this block between the people who do it and the people who don't. Any final notes before we wrap up? Programming is a fractal problem. It is, the closer you look at something, uh, you'll find that could be related to other code. Uh, There are browser bugs I have, and some of them, if I really want to understand them, I have to understand the rendering engine in that browser. I have to find the rendering engine. Uh, If I want to understand some of the decisions made in that rendering engine, I have to understand, like, the language and where this language evolved from. Uh, and then I'm learning new languages all of a sudden. And like, that's a whole different problem. And as I learned those languages, like I discovered data structures I've never seen before and figure out why somebody would make those data structures. And like they made it, they made this data structure because it fit this particular search algorithm better. And then I'm working on a search algorithm uh, down there. And then like I'm into mathematics and set theory. And then I'm back to programming and like trying to figure out why the pixels are in the wrong place. One pixel was off and I'm learning new programming languages. It's so many problems in coding are exactly like this. Like there, it's so interconnected, such a complex process. Like you're always going to find one. And at my job, we call it, you know, a rabbit hole bug. Like one tiny thing is off and you think it's a simple fix, but it's not. It's three days learning a new standard and like researching Lisp. Who knew? CodeMonkey, Peter Welch, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you.
The opening music was The Return by Nisi23 from the album 11 and 12, and the closing music was Blindless Bats by Connor from the album Retork.